in the last couple of weeks, and for that matter, every week we come together, we tell you what our purpose is. And Matt already said it this morning, but it's to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus. If you've been hanging out with us for any period of time, I hope you know that. Like, I hope you can actually say it. If somebody came to you and said, all right, what is Rio Vista Community Church? I mean, what's your purpose? Why do you exist? You could spout that out, you know, at least get close. To lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus, you ought also to know something about how we grow in our relationship with Jesus here. We grow by doing this, by gathering. We grow by plugging into community groups. And we grow, and this is what we're talking about, by serving, by waking up to the reality that Jesus Christ has called us to go out into all the world. My little individual world, your little individual world, our world as a church, collectively, this city, this county, this part of Florida, and the world the great big world in which we live, to go out into the world not as those who are seeking to have the world serve us, but as those who are seeking to serve the world. That is to say, we're to go out into the world the way that Jesus came into the world, the great King of heaven that we sang about, be thou my vision, came into the world. Not only did he condescend to become a human, but a peasant. He came as a peasant. And then what did he say? He said, look, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve, and I came to serve and to give my life away. That's the, the radical nature of this kind of service, by the way. He gives his life away all the way to death, you see, and to give my life away as a ransom for many. But for many what? For many people. And that's where we started out. You know, we're looking at the gospel and people, and we said, wow, you know, God really loves people. People like me, people like you, people like the, you, people you just saw in the video, people that are represented in that kind of cockeyed, messy-looking sign. And the reality is that's all of us, you know? I mean, we may look, you know, a little more nicely dressed or whatever the case might be, but we're just as messy, sometimes a whole lot more. None of us can make claims to be free of mess. And yet we talked about God's love for broken, sinful people like us and those outside the walls today. And we said that people matter to God and therefore they, all, they need also to matter to us. But then we came back last week and, you know, as Matt rehearsed, he said, look, how are they going to know that they matter? Okay, I mean, great, they matter to God, they matter to me, but how will they know that? How does the guy in my office know that? How does the guy, you know, who's sleeping under the bridge know that? How do the people across the other side of the world know that they actually matter to God and matter to us? What is the language that we need to speak by which we can communicate authentically that that is in fact the case? And we said the love language of God is mercy. And it's the love language, by the way, that he spoke through Christ. Christ enters into the world and he comes in doing what? healing, feeding. He dealt with the physical needs of people everywhere he went. He dealt with emotional needs. People brought the deranged, the possessed to Jesus. And quite astonishingly, again and again, he leaves them of a sound mind. And he met also the most significant need that any person, anywhere, anytime, place ever has. It's my most significant need, it's yours, it's everyone else's, and that is the need to know that somehow, some way, we're clean. We're good at getting dirty, but we can't do anything about it. That's what the cross is all about. It's Christ saying, put it all by faith on me, and by his blood he takes it all away. 
So anyway, mercy is the love language of God. It's what he spoke through Jesus, and it's what he is looking to speak through us as individuals, but then also collectively as the church, which, if you haven't picked up on it, is the topic today. And so the church is. What would you say? I mean, what is the church supposed to do? What is it supposed to be? The church is... Well, that's what I'm going to talk about with you guys. You know, it's interesting when you think about that topic, the Bible gives us uh, so many different kind of answers, but it, I, I sort of look at it as like different angles on the same answer, if that makes any sense. There is this beautiful, there is this precious, there is this Christ, you know, bought with his blood thing that we call the church. And all throughout the Bible, we're seeing these different metaphors, we're seeing these different stories, we're seeing these different examples, we're seeing this different teaching, and it's like different angles on the same thing. And there is absolutely no way in one message or in one series of messages, I can give you all the different answers, all the different angles, I can show you all the different looks and talk about all the nuances. I just am going to give you a few this morning, but I hope, I hope they're helpful. I hope they inform us as to what we're supposed to do and be. And the first thing that I want you to see, and it, it, it's not necessarily obvious unless you think about it for a minute, and then it gets real obvious because it's everywhere in the Bible, is the church is a called-out people. And I realize that's a weird phrase, so let me explain it to you. The church is a group of people that God has sovereignly chosen and called out of darkness. That God, for reasons known only to Him, have called out of death. That God, somewhere within the mysterious counsel of His will, decided to pull out of sin, and not just out of sin, but out of the judgment, out of the consequences for sin. We're a called out people. We're a people who have been rescued as if from a burning building, and it's the burning building of the sin of our lives, every one of us. We see it with Noah. You know, Noah's kind of an interesting story. Noah is a story that I, I think is just so traumatic for us that we've tried to make it nice. Seriously, I mean, at my house, I don't know if we still have this because the dog ate a lot of it, but we had, or have, with chewed up characters, a little wooden boat. I mean, do you have that? With two little wooden giraffes and two little wooden elephants. I know little and elephant doesn't usually go in the same sentence, but littler still, since the dog chewed it up. A little chewed up Noah and Mrs. Noah and three sons all in a cute little ark that you put in your children's room and the Bible verse on the bottom, you know, you follow? I mean, it's, it is such a traumatic story that I think that we have sort of kind of gone, woo, you know, we've got to make this a little calmer, but it's not calm and it's not cute and it's not funny. It's frankly terrifying. We see in that story that sin brings the judgment of God, but we see that God snatched as if from the flames a man and a family named Noah. That's the church. That's me. It's you. We kind of move on to the next non-funny story. What is that? Lot. Have you thought about that one? Sodom and Gomorrah? No way to make that one nice. You know, there's like no little wooden figurines that we can kind of shine that one up with and feel better about. Here's the wooden brimstone and, you know, fire from heaven. Not going to happen. We just skip that one when we get to it in the Bible, don't we? Because it's traumatic. But it's something we need actually to think about. 
God calls Lot out. He rescues Lot. I mean, there's smoke on the clothes, man. Smoke on my clothes. We see it in the Exodus, you know, you travel forward. What happens in the Exodus? Here are the people of Israel. They're enslaved to Egypt 430 years. It's a stunningly long time, isn't it? And Egypt itself represents the land of the dead. It experiences darkness. It's this place of slavery, of entrapment, of oppression. It experiences all of this injustice. It's all of this stuff that's wrong, in a sense, with people and with the world. And so God is determined to destroy it. Plague upon plague upon plague upon plague. Not little plagues, not fun plagues. Plagues. And he spares his people. We see it with Rahab. Rahab is a prostitute. I'm going to use a different word. It's a biblical word. Parents, forgive me. Rahab is a whore. And you know why I feel good about using that word? I'll tell you, and I may have said this in the past. The whore is the image of me and of you in the Bible. Now, we may not have sold our bodies in prostitution, or maybe we have, but the reality is we have sold ourselves over and over and over and over and over again. It's who we are, and yet that's who God redeems. Joshua leads the Israelites into the promised land, you see, and they're going to take the land by force because they can't just roll in and go, you know, God gave us this land. We're going to give you guys like a week to clear out. They're not going to do that. And they come up against the most significant challenge in the land, this great city of Jericho, walled up against God and the people of God, famous for its great walls, for its military might. They send two spies into it. You'll recall that. The spies are found out, you know, and hunted by the king of Jericho. So they go to the house of the whore who makes a credible profession of faith. She says, you know, we, I believe in this God of yours. I've heard all about him. I know the city is going to fall to you guys. Uh, here's the deal. I'm going to save your lives. I'm going to help you. I am, by faith, one of you. And so she lets them, you know, she, she helps them escape. And they make a deal. They say, look, here's the thing. You hang the scarlet cord out your window. Everybody behind the door of your house will be saved. Everybody else? Well, it's kind of traumatic, isn't it? And the people shout, and the walls fall, and Jericho is overrun, and it is burned to the ground, but not until Rahab is first called out. The last we read of Rahab is in the New Testament, where she is a mother of Jesus. She's in the royal line of Christ. It's remarkable. You know, we see this also in the book of Revelation. So you fast forward to the New Testament. Hey, we're a called out people. And what's interesting is you get to that book of Revelation. It's very kind of a confusing book. You know, you read it and it's like, what is this all about? Well, it's patterned in large part about around that city of Jericho and that conquest by Joshua. And what do we find? We find another great city with great walls, walled up against God and the people of God containing a whore into which two witnesses are sent. She's identified by Scarlet. It's kind of striking, don't you think? The walls fall with a great shout. The city is burned to the ground. It matches, well, frankly, identically. But not until John says this. It says, I heard another voice from heaven saying, what? Because here is the call that every one of us who believes in Jesus has responded to. Come out of her, my people. 
Why? So that you will not participate in her sin and receive of her judgment, of her plagues. For her sins have piled up as high as the heavens, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back even as she has paid, and give back to her double according to her deeds. And the cup which she has mixed, mixed twice as much to her, to the degree that she has glorified herself and lived sensuously to the same degree. Give her torment and mourning, for she says in her heart, I sit as a queen, and I am not a widow, and I will never see mourning. Judgment, she's saying, will never come for me. For this reason, in one day, her plagues will come, pestilence and mourning and famine, and she, well, here it is, will be burned up with fire, for the Lord God who judges her is strong, and he judges her. It's not real cute. Not all that warm and fuzzy. I mean warm, but not fuzzy. Not funny. It's just, wow. We don't think about that much, do we? But how does the passage begin? Come out of her, my people. See, if you've responded to the gospel of Christ, that's you. And how is it that you are spared? Did God just turn a blind eye to your sin and say, ah, you know, you're kind of one of my favorites? I'll look the other way. No. He poured out his wrath upon Christ for your sins, for my sins, that as if from a burning building we might be set free. And I think it's important for us to consider that because that should do something to us psychically as well. I mean, that should cause us to like be really thrilled for starters. We shouldn't have to come in on a Sunday morning and kind of, you know, conjure up enough energy to sing, oh, good grief, we're going to sing that chorus again. Yes, we are. Rescued. It obligates us to this God who has rescued us. And oh, guys, does it not make you want to see more people rescued? The church is a called out people. And it may be that you're here this morning and today you're called out. And you place your sin and shame on Jesus. And you begin to sing real, real loud with your whole life. But we're called out people. But called out to do what? Now listen to what the Lord says to Abraham. You know, I like Abraham. Spent 18 weeks, in case you missed it, just on Abraham. I've taken no small amount of abuse for that, by the way, too. But Abraham is instructive to us, isn't he? Listen to what God says. He speaks to Abraham for the first time, Genesis 12, verse 1. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth. What's that? He's calling him out. 
We're a called out people, and all of us are in Abraham. He's saying, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house, you see? He's calling him out of what we know, because we spent 18 weeks on it, was the land of Ur. It's a land famous for its idolatry. His dad's name, Terah, is the name of the moon god. His wife's name was the wife of the girlfriend of the moon god. The man is an idolater, and God reaches down and out of all humanity, and for what reason, I don't know. It's all contained within the mysterious counsel of his will. He chooses Abraham, just like he's chosen and rescued you because you're better looking than everybody else. Look around. <laughs> because you're a better person than everybody else? Are you really? No. Oh, you're more, you know, you're more intelligent. Is that... No, because of nothing inherent in any of us. It's just the grace of the Lord. God has called us out. He calls out Abraham. Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house. And go, he says, to this land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. Hang on to that. And I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a what? Because it's the next thing that the church is. So you shall be a, the church is to be a blessing. Well, that puts a different spin on things. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth, he's saying, will be blessed. How? Well, Abraham gives birth to Isaac, and Isaac to Jacob, and Jacob to Judah, and then Judah through many generations later. David, and then David many generations later. Jesus, and then Jesus shows up, and by his Spirit has given birth to a great nation. The spiritual descendants of Abraham, the great nation that is referred to here, this entity, this thing that we call the church, which is not a building, a piece of property, a club, an organization, like any other in the world. It's a group of called out people that have been given the mission of being a blessing to the world, a blessing to the people in each one of our little individual worlds, a blessing to the people in our city, our world as Rio Vista Community Church and a blessing all around the world. Church is a called out people, called out to then be a blessing. The church is to be a blessing, thirdly, the church is the royal family of the Lord. And I love this one. This is really cool. So in other words, God has not just called you out of your de deadness. He's not just called you out of darkness and sin. He's not just spared you as if from a burning building from the very real consequences of sin. But he's gone beyond that and he's made you his. He's brought you into the family. He has done, like we saw the first week of this series with the prodigal son, he's put the ring of sonship, if you will, or daughtership, if that's where you're at, on your hand, the emblem of belonging to his family. It's kind of cool. I mean, we're royalty. It's wonderful. Listen to Peter and understand he says so much in this passage I'm not even going to touch. But he uses the word royal to describe us. 1 Peter 2.9, he says, But you, the church, he's saying, are a chosen race. But a race that's not ethnically defined, where every language, every color, every tribe, every strata of economics, every different kind of education, 
We're far more diverse than all the different candles here today. He says, but you, the church, are a chosen race, a, and here's the word, royal, I love that, priesthood, a holy nation, this nation that God has raised up to be a blessing, a people for God's own possession. We don't belong to ourselves, we belong to him. We're obligated to the one who has rescued us. But I love it because we're the sons and daughters of the king, which, you know, I mean, depending on where you're at economically, is, you know, it makes you want to go, well, where's all my wealth? And I want to tell you today that you have it. That's the good news. Bad news is you can't draw on it here. All you can do is make deposits. Your wealth is in heaven. And, you know, you kind of feel like God's done the bait and switch on you with that one, don't you? It's like, you have it all. Really? Yeah. Yeah, actually, really. See, the wealth that we have as the sons and daughters of the king is not this transient stuff that we deal with here today, you know, that's here today and it's gone tomorrow, as some of us have learned. And then maybe it kind of comes back, but then maybe not, and it's dependent upon all these factors. And then when we die, of course, we just leave it all behind, don't we? We don't get to take any of it with us. It's not like that. It is an eternal wealth that is inexhaustible. It never goes away. It's not subject to markets. And it is available to us, not in this little life that we have, which is but a whisper, but in the life to come, which never ends. I'm thinking that's the more valuable bank account. I'm just going to go with that. But the next question is, well, then where are all my servants? Because, you know, I mean, we're royalty, right? All right, well, then just look around today, okay? Go ahead. You can look around. It's all right. Just go ahead. Look around. See all these people? They're your servants. And you're theirs. We are the servants. And we are called to serve one another. And then also the people in our little individual worlds, collectively, this city, this county, and the world itself. Peter says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. A holy nation, people for God's own possession, sons and daughters of the king, people who know and, I pray, live as though they understand and know that their wealth is in heaven. That changes the way you live, guys. And they're called to be a servant to each other and to the world. But for what purpose, to what end? Here it is. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Please do not be confused in this series. We are not simply saying, hey, you need to go serve as though you don't then need to tell people about Jesus. We must serve. That's our approach to the world. But we must also speak. We must proclaim the excellencies of the gospel of Christ with our mouths. So the church is a called out people. We smell a little smoky. The church is called to be a blessing. The church is the family of God. We're royalty, but then fourthly, the church is the body of Christ. And this is kind of an interesting deal. We're the body of Jesus. Now think about that, you know. What do you do with your body? 
Is there anything you do you don't do with your body? That's maybe a little more clear. No. You know, is there? I mean, there's not. And yet the Holy Spirit grabs hold of this idea of a body with hands and feet and eyes and ears and nose and mouth and legs and arms and, you know, and the whole shooting match, okay? And says, you guys, the church, we are the body of Christ. I think what he's trying to say, at least in part, is that, you know, whatever it is that Jesus is going to do in this world, he's going to do in this world by his spirit through his body, of which every one of us is a part. And every part is valuable. And that's what Paul kind of goes with. He, he says in 1 Corinthians 12, he says, Now the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Again, hands, feet, arms, legs. If the foot, he says, should say, because I am not a hand, I'm stuck in a stinky shoe, I do not belong to the body. It would not, for that reason, cease to be a part of the body. It would instead simply be a part of the body that isn't doing its part. And how are we going to take a stand without the foot? How are we going to get anywhere without the foot? The foot's important, is the idea. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be a part of the body. Again, it's just a part of the body that isn't doing its deal. It's not doing its job. And as a result, the body is deaf. That's not helpful. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged. It's his sovereign design. God has arranged the parts in the body don't miss this, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? And the answer to that is simple. It would be without the sense of touch. That's the hand, smell, that's the nose, hearing, that's the ears, sight, that's the eyes, taste, that's the mouth. The body of Christ, this body through whom he purposes by his spirit and for his glory to do his work in this world would be insensible and ineffective. What a difference it would make if every believer everywhere played his or her part Guys, it'd be the difference between darkness and light. And that's the last image I want to leave you with. The last thing that the church is that I want you to walk out thinking about today is that the church is the light of the world. Jesus is going to say that in a second. We're going to pull it up on the screen. You're going to see it. It's going to be really cool. Hang on. I know it's suspenseful. But here's the thing. You're not a light of the world. You're not one of the lights of the world. Jesus is commenting on light and on darkness. And he's saying, listen, just want you guys to know, a little heads up here. Real clear for you, you are the light of the world. But for the church, there is no light. Matthew 5, 14, he says, you, the church, are the light of the world. And then he says, in like so many words, he says, so, you know, doggone it, get out there and be light. Be light. He says, a city set on a hill. He's speaking of intentionality. Set speaks of intentionality. You know, he's not saying a city that just sprang up somewhere. In his day, they put cities intentionally on hills for reasons related to protection and life. And they made them out of limestone. That's what's available. That's a white rock, which they lit with torches, generally speaking. It had great big walls all lit up. He's calling that to mind for these people to try to tell you and I who we are together. He says, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp 
and put it under a basket. He says, you know, you don't light it to hide it, but you put it on a lampstand, a lampstand which is lifted up. It's strategically placed in the home of his day, which had no electricity, so as to send off as much light as can possibly be. That's the idea. He says, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. And then he's saying, so then you also, is the idea. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works, that they will see the things that you do in the name of Christ, that they will see you be Jesus in their midst, that they will see your selfless acts of mercy. And hopefully then hear the message of rescue. Let your light so shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Who is the church? What is the church? The church is a called out people. The church is to be a blessing, a positive in the world, in the community, in the little individual worlds in which the church goes through each one of us. The church is the royal family of God. Understanding its wealth is in heaven and serving, you see, each other and others that we might effectively proclaim his gospel. The church is the body of Christ, this body that God has chosen to do his work through as his spirit works in you. And the church is the light of the world. And Jesus, I think, would say to us what he said to his disciples, the church in his day, he'd say, now guys, get out there and shine. You are the light in an otherwise entirely dark world. Get out there and shine. Amen.